I'm E.J. Ionelli, and this is From the Studio. This morning, we're joined by the director and cast members of Stage Left's new production of How I Learned to Drive. And the play opens this evening, and it deals with some pretty charged topics that we're going to discuss right now. So in the room, we have Susan Hardy, who's directing. Hi, E.J. Uh, hi, Susan. We have Rebecca Craven. Good morning. And Rebecca is playing one of the Greek chorus members. We have Lisa Edwards. Hello. Good morning, Lisa. And Lisa is playing Little Bit. And then we also have Danny Anderson. Good morning. Good morning, Danny. And Danny is playing Uncle Peck. Uh, so welcome, everybody. And uh, we'll leap right into it. And uh, Susan, at a time when we have uh, productions like Elf and She Loves Me and a Sherlock Carol on stage, we, we have How I Learned to Drive. Um, for folks who are not familiar with just the, the basic premise of this play, what's taking place here? How I Learned to Drive is a memory play, and uh, our narrator, Little Bit, uh, is a grown woman who was looking back at working through and telling us the story of uh, her relationship uh, when she was an adolescent from the ages of 11 to about 18 um, with her uncle Peck. And this was a relationship, uh, a very complex uh, relationship. It was a sexual relationship. And uh, this is the story of Little Bit and Peck working through this relationship, basically Little Bit working through this relationship and coming out on the other side. Um, never fully able to disassociate from this man who was in her life and yet being able to live with the abuse that happened. And when you say memory play, what does that mean for the structure of the play? Um, it's a very unusual and wonderful structure. Um, little bit, we meet her uh, as a grown woman, uh, and she takes us back in time through um, the metaphor of driving lessons. Um, and so we shift back and forth, and we idle sometimes and let the scene breathe. Um, but uh, you'll see a scene today, for example, where we shift back to when Little Bit was 13 years old. And we see these shiftings go from... Uh, uh, older to younger, and so we see the development of the relationship in a sort of reverse order. And w when you say that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it follows chronologically, so we don't go back to a certain starting point and then proceed in a chronological fashion. It, we shuffle through memories, no? That's correct. It's kind of a shuffle through. And we have an announcer, an offstage announcer, who uh, helps us along by uh, letting us know what the car is doing at this point, right? So the metaphor of the car and the driving lessons, which um, Uncle Peck gives little bit many gifts, and one of them is he teaches her how to learn how to drive. And so this whole metaphor goes throughout the play, weaves throughout the play, and so um, we are told we're shifting back. You know, now we're going into reverse gear, you and the reverse gear. And so we know we're going back in time and we're regressing in terms of little bits age and we get to see the relationship. And so two questions that emerge from that. One is, who is the announcer? The announcer is, and many people will, will not understand who they're listening to, but they will know the voice, is a wonderful gentleman named Bob Phillips, who I worked with at Creme Television uh, many, many years ago. And Bob has since retired, but he was the voice of Creme from, oh gosh, uh, way back in the 60s to certainly after I left to the 1990s. 
Um, anyway, um, Bob is our offstage announcer, and he does such a beautiful job, and he makes it sound like one of those old driving manual kind of, <laughs> those old driving films, you know, ship, you know. So anyway, yeah, it's very and, special having him. And these, uh, these driving lessons or these gifts that Peck offers Lil Bit, these are all part of a grooming strategy, no? Yes. And so these are kind of essential or fundamental to their relationship. Yes. Well, let's hear from those characters now, or the actors portraying those characters. Now, Lisa, with Lil Bit, introduce us to Lil Bit and who she is as a woman, and also where we start off or where we see her as a, um, a preteen. Mm-hmm. As a woman, I think the most important thing that we know about Lil Bit is that she is a survivor. She has come through this and processed as best she can, and she's survived and is and is out in the world, hopefully doing good. Um, but she, but but she's made it right. And to get there, I mean, the youngest we meet a little bit in this play is when she's eleven, and it's a really, um, it's the the eleven year old scene between a little bit and her mother is one of the most jarring to me, even though it doesn't seem like it on the surface. But it's a little bit begging her mom to spend more time with Uncle Peck. Before anything has happened, <laughs> like, you know, and so it's it's setting up the whole situation because she doesn't have a father figure in her life besides him. And she is craving that attention. Um, and so so we that's where it starts. And, um, you know, we the, the journey of a little bit is beautiful and tragic. And but in the end, positive. And inhabiting this character seems like it would be difficult. And I mean, it's also going to pose a challenge to Danny Mm -hmm. inhabiting Uncle Peck. But uh, capturing all that nuance, because you, little bit, is a victim Mm -hmm. to some extent, but also is complicit in this, is at times a willing participant. Correct. And it, it... how are you approaching that as an actor in capturing this um, this very nuanced relationship? Absolutely, and that has been the most challenging thing um, because I want to honor people who have lived this experience, right? And um, and and make it true and real and believable. Um, it's a it's a matter of thinking. Okay, where is little bit in this process? Where is she? And how can I? What can I relate that to? And there are scenes where a little bit is flirting with Uncle Peck, and she's leading the charge. And so that I just take it from this is what a little bit wants in this moment. Mm-hmm. And then there are other scenes where sh- where she's pulling away and realizing, no, I don't. This is not what you know. So it's it's figuring out where she is and how to honestly show that and reconcile that. Yes, this is a very complex situation and complex in her head and and just doing my best <laughs> to to show that. Yeah, and contributing to that complexity is uh, is Uncle Peck. And so Danny, if you could introduce us to Uncle Peck as a as a character, does he come across as immediately seedy? Are there warning bells right from the beginning or are there likable aspects to Uncle Peck that make this a little more comprehensible? He's a uh, been a <laughs> A bizarre character to approach in that sense because uh, both things are true, uh, essentially. Right out the gate, we do have examples of who this man is. Um, but then he's is very likable. He's a, a charming character. The play never really leans into the aspects of him being nefarious or seedy, as you put it. Um, it's a really honest look at 
a, a complicated man. And I think that's uh, one of the challenges as a viewer is a lot of times, just like Little Bit, uh, he's likable on the surface. He's a family man. He helps out in the neighborhood. And the way I approach him is just that. Even in his head, as far as the grooming goes or the complicated nature of their relationship, um, what makes it so fascinating is I, I think he really believes, you know, he loves a little bit and is uh, making everything. It's her choice. Um, um, but obviously he's controlling and is manipulating. So it's very duplicitous in that sense and uh, makes it a fascinating character to approach and watch. And I think it's complicated as an audience member, your feelings, and you're kind of right there with little bit where you start to like Uncle Peck and you're like, wait, no, this is very much <laughs> the bad guy. Um, right right down to the end. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a fascinating play and brilliantly written for those aspects. And this character kind of <clears throat> continues um, something that you've done. Uh, you know, when I look back at your recent characters, you know, we were talking before we went on air how you've been the, the tarnished angel in our own radio play, Conscience. <laughs> yeah. um, you were the officer in Passover. Yeah. So these characters that are, to some extent, villainous um, <laughs> are, are not alien to you. Uh, is this what you're drawn to? Yeah, I hope I'm not typecast. <laughs> um, I like, you know, as an actor, of course, you always want to be challenged. And I've been fortunate to do a lot of work here in Spokane and across the region. So you, you do start to seek out um, different roles. You know, Christmas Carol is not always going to do it for me. <laughs> uh, but it is coming off, you know, a racist police officer to uh, pedophile uncle. Where <laughs> <laughs> I have found myself in a, in a strange camp, but um, it, it's rewarding to dive deep uh, in these projects. And, you know, this is an award-winning play. And... And once you get to elevate a character like that, it's, you know, it's really becomes just an honor. But here I am again. Boom. <laughs> yeah. And at the outset, I kind of juxtaposed this with She Loves Me and a Sherlock Carol and other holiday plays that are. But this is not without its holiday moments. Um, and you have a scene, um, you, Lisa and Danny, have a scene that highlights the relationship between Uncle Peck and Lil Bit and also takes place at Christmas. Um, is there anything else folks need to know about this scene before we go into it? Um, Lil Bit is 13 in this scene. And it's uh, after uh, Christmas dinner, and Uncle Peck has retreated from the rest of the family and is doing the dishes. And Little Bit comes to check on him, basically. Excellent. Let's hear that now. Did Big Papa hurt your feelings? What? Oh, no. It doesn't hurt me. Family is family. I'd rather have him picking on me than... I don't pay him any mind, Little Bit. Are you angry with us? No, Little Bit. I'm not angry. We... We missed you at Thanksgiving. Well, I did. I missed you. Well, there were things going on. I didn't want to spoil anyone's Thanksgiving. Uncle Peck, please don't drink anymore tonight. I'm not. Overdoing it. I know. Why do you drink so much? Well, a little bit. Let me explain it this way. There are some people who have a, a fire in the belly. I think they go to work on Wall Street or they run for office. And then there are people who have a fire in their heads and they become writers or scientists or historians. You, you've got a fire in the head. And then there are people like me. Where do you have a fire? I have a fire in my heart. And sometimes the drinking helps. There's got to be other things that can help. 
I suppose there are. Does it help to talk to me? Yes, it does. I don't get to see you very much. I know. You could talk to me more. Oh? I could make a deal with you, Uncle Peck. I'm listening. We could meet and talk once a week. You could just store up whatever's bothering you during the week, and then we could talk. Would you like that? As long as you don't drink. I'd meet you somewhere for lunch or for a walk on the weekends, as long as you stop drinking, and we could talk about whatever you want. You would do that for me? I don't think I'd want Mom to know, or Aunt Mary. I wouldn't want them to think No, it would just be us talking. I'll tell Mom I'm going to a girlfriend's to study. Mom doesn't get home until 6, so you can call me after school and tell me where to meet you. You get home at 4? We can meet once a week, but only in public. You've got to let me draw the line, and once it's drawn, you mustn't cross it. Understood. Would that help? Yes. Very much. I'm going to join the others in the living room now. <laughs> Merry Christmas, little bit. Merry Christmas, Uncle Peck. And scene. And that scene does give us a heck of a lot to unpack. <laughs> However, Susan, you had mentioned that this is a memory play and that these memories unfold a little nebulously and a little, um, you know, out of, out of order, out mm -hmm. of chronology. And crucial to all that is the Greek chorus. And Rebecca, you are a member of that three-person Greek chorus that yes. kind of shapeshifts and assumes different roles. Can you talk about um, your role as a chorus member and maybe some of the roles that you inhabit? Absolutely. Um, we inhabit the other members of the family and the other members of her world and what she went through. So I not only play her mother, I play Aunt Mary, who's married to Uncle Peck, as well as a teenagers that she ran into in school and narrators and all these different roles to round out her experience with all of this. So it's very interesting to get to play these different characters that enable, to a point, this to happen. Um, victim blame, you know, they're all surrounding in, with her and, and how she makes it through this process. And I'm wondering if you could also speak on behalf of Jeffrey St. George and Jenny Oliver. And Jeffrey St. George was just in a Hamlet. I think that yes. was his most <laughs> yes, recent. He was. So here he is as a Greek chorus member. What roles do they inhabit? Uh, grandpa and Grandma. Um, they play a younger version of Little Bit at some points, different uh, high school characters uh, that run into them. And so they just have a lot of fun. We're more the comic relief of the show to try and ease some of the delicate moments into the audience. <laughs> so. it, oh, sorry. Did you want to say something? Oh, just that um, Paula Vogel, the playwright, has crafted an amazing piece and is very, I, I was very aware that this is very difficult material. And so she uses a device of the Greek chorus to sort of um, give us a little breathing space between the tough stuff that's happening on stage and an expression of these all of these family members and people around her that take on a very comic uh, uh, cast but uh, are are definitely meant to shine a light uh, in a very yeah it, it shine a light on the abuse on the uh, enabling on all of the things that we would typically see around the victim. 
And what's interesting is that traditionally the Greek chorus t- takes on a, a more ominous and foreboding role, mm-hmm. whereas here they serve a comic role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're saying that that was very intentional oh, on Paula Vogel's part. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so with the Greek chorus, now you mentioned some of the other characters that you portray as yes. part of this. Now, you have a scene as well that um, that I think speaks to one of the roles that you inhabit yes. as her mother. Mother. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to do that sure. now or did you want to give some context to that scene? Uh, this is uh, motherly advice <laughs> to little bit on how to handle herself out in the world with dating men or going out and drinking. So this is her idea of how to protect her daughter. <laughs> and this also highlights the humor that underscores this. So even though we have this uh, this very disturbing and very unsettling relationship taking place, Susan, as you mentioned, there's this comedic element or this, this through line of humor yes, that uh, that is captured in this scene. A mother's guide to social drinking. A lady never gets sloppy. She may, however, get tipsy and a little gay. Never drink on an empty stomach. Avail yourself of the bread basket and generous portions of butter. Slather the butter on your bread. Sip your drink slowly. Let the beverage linger in your mouth, interspersed with interesting, fascinating conversation. Sip, never slurp or gulp. Your glass should always be three-quarters full when his glass is empty. Stay away from ladies' drinks. Drinks such as pink ladies, slow gin fizzes, Daiquiris, gold Cadillacs, Long Island iced teas, margaritas, pina coladas, mai tais, planters punch, white Russians, black Russians, red Russians, melon balls, blue balls, hummingbirds, hemorrhages, and hurricanes. In short, avoid anything with sugar or anything with an umbrella. Get your vitamin C from fruit. Don't order anything with voodoo or vixen in the title or sexual positions in the name like dead men screw or the missionary. Believe me, they are lethal. I think you were conceived after one of those. Drink instead like a man, straight up or on the rocks with plenty of water in between. Oh, yes, and never mix your drinks. Stay with one all night long like the man you came in with. Bourbon, gin, or tequila till dawn. Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And scene. And so it's not as if Lil Bit is without motherly advice, no, but no, she no. she certainly gets questionable yes. motherly advice. Yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's part of it is showing the family members had a role in making this being able to happen to Lil Bit. And so um, it, it shows the entire scenario that it wasn't, it's not just Little Bit's fault at all. It's, it's not just Uncle Peck's. It, everybody had a role that played into her story. And we, as the Greek chorus, play those other members of her in her mind. And uh, I don't want to get on a detour, but I think it's an interesting detour, is that both you and Lisa are coming to this and, and appearing on stage after directing roles. You, Lisa, in Aviary for Birds of Sadness, mm-hmm. and you, Rebecca, in uh, Saucy Jack in yes. the Space. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, two very different plays. Um, how is it shifting uh, shifting gears like that to, you know, employ the driving conceit mm-hmm. and, um, and wearing those different hats and then coming to a very challenging play after those, well, one very challenging play and then also that took place in, a, in an unconventional space. Yes. I mean, I think I can speak for both of us when, that we both think of ourselves as actor directors. And sure. so it's nice uh, in Spokane to be able to have those opportunities like this. And, you know, it's not always back to back like this that it happens. But um, 
it's it's definitely a mental shift when you go from directing to acting. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was, you know, thrilled at the opportunity to take on this role. It's a role I've wanted to have for a long time. So you just take off that director hat, give that to Susan, and she does a great job with yeah. it. I don't need it. I don't feel like <laughs> I need it at all. And um, and just and live in the world of character and actor. Bring those skills back out. It is a different toolbox that you use for your skills when you're an actor versus a director and you you have to expand your mind as a director into covering the whole world mm -hmm. and how everything is going to come together whereas as an actor you're more internal to your character and how mm -hmm. that character affects the play and so it is a definite shift mm -hmm. as you go through it's changing your roles i would also say that for me, I was so much more nervous as a director <laughs> oh. when, when, as a director, oh. more nervous because I've done what I can do, and then it's in their hands. It's still in my hands now as an actor. I can still do better, you know. <laughs> and so right. that I, I don't know. That's something. Yeah, it's else. a different. It's totally different mindset of what you want to do, and that's why I think we enjoy both mm -hmm. of the opportunities. Is you you get to have different skills and and different ways to grow with each role. And Lisa, with Aviary for Birds of Sadness, now this dealt with some challenging topics as well. Did that better prepare you for this role? It definitely um, taught me some lessons, I would say most importantly, in um, how to take care of myself through the process. Um, because um, it was very hard on um, some of the actors in Aviary and on me too, dealing with that topic. And we did not really... Uh, it wasn't something I was expecting. And so we had to kind of help each other through that and came up with some strategies for how to deal with the emotions that were brought up. And after the show, when people would come and talk about what this brought up for them. Um, and so in this show, some of the lessons learned, I went to, I talked to Jeremy after that show, Jeremy Whittington at Stage Left, and said, here's some things I think would be good going forward with shows of set that are going to put the actors and the audience through it. Um, and so we have an intimacy director that has been with us through this process. Um, and, and she's been incredible. There are resources in the lobby of the theater for um, folks who, um, who, who need those resources after seeing this play. We have some strategies as a cast that we are doing afterwards to let this go and leave the theater with and not take it with us. Um, so it's that I think that is the biggest lesson I learned was how to take care of myself and bring that to the other members of the team. Yeah, and she's working production wide, so with everyone involved yes. in the production. But she's also dealing specifically with you and Danny. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, if you and Danny <laughs> wanted to speak specifically to some of the strategies or tools that she's given you, uh, or just the space that she's created to kind of step away from these characters. You know, once you're off stage. Uh, yeah, that's Nike Moru we're talking about, and she's just a master teacher. Um, so the training, you know, this is a new role in the industry, film and stuff, uh, kind of coming out of the Me Too movement and just addressing the sensitivities that come with complicated issues and shows that deal with trauma. So it, it's kind of new for all of us, and I think a little bit new for her as far as it being specific training and as a role. But... <laughs> Uh, she's fantastic and it really was helpful but it's just approaching scenes with a grace a sensitivity slowing down and not rushing into it we can all we can, we're proud or we think we can handle things as Lisa was saying with birds um, 
And it takes a coach like that to stop and see if he's like, no, I'm not triggered or no, I'm, I'm open to whatever, if it's kissing or touching on stage or just uh, emotional content, that's not going to affect me. And she stepped in like, uh, just had to slow down and really think about that and realize, no, we're not all invincible. And uh, you can carry a lot of this home and, mm-hmm. and start to diminish your mental health. Um, so it's just she works as a guide to approach that more gently so you're not walking into landmines as you're trying to approach and pass on this really valuable art. Um, Well said. (laughs) (laughs) And then lastly, Susan, I would say despite this being a challenging play, but I think that's the wrong way to phrase it, I think because this is a challenging play, you have been looking to do it for uh, several decades. So really since it appeared in 97, I think it was. Um, So could you talk about your desire to bring it to the stage and why now? And then also the the changes in the audience that that we'll be seeing this and how we as a society might be experiencing this play differently to when you first experienced Mm it. Yeah, I I first had the privilege to see this play in 97 uh, when it was off-Broadway, the uh, the first time it hit New York. Uh, And uh, it recently came back uh, just about a year ago to Broadway uh, with the original cast and director. So that's amazing. And But it has stayed with me ever since. And the main reason it stayed with me was because of the sheer theatricality of the piece, the beauty of the piece itself. I am very grateful to be able to say I have never experienced what Little Bit has been through. That being said, there are many other things within the play, body image issues, lots of other things that speak to me. And so I think there's a universality about what Little Bit goes through as a young person. But what really stuck with me after all these years is the intense power of the piece that I saw and the theatricality. And I was just becoming a director at that time on my own. And so I was floored by the piece itself and the way it's written. It It's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, it's just so beautifully crafted. So that's what stuck with me, and that's why all these years I wanted to get my hands on it and, and, and actually do it. So this has been a wonderful thing. In terms of the audience, I think there's a different audience for this play now that see this play. I think things are a little closer to the surface in terms of feelings and, and wounds, and I think um, this is a different time when people are more vocal about um, I think when this play first came out, um, there was a whole different view of what a perpetrator might be. It was the the creepy guy in the, you know, in the trench, trench coat, coat, right? Um, and now we know that this this person is living all around us and can be the nicest guy in your neighborhood, right? But also, I think that we are dealing with our wounds a little bit differently now than we used to. It mm-hmm. was much. Um, Peck's wife does uh, speak to this about mm-hmm. Peck has his own issues and he never talks about them and they're all deep inside and I think that's the way it, it used to be and now uh, we are more vocal and we are more open about our wounds and so I think we have come across people who uh, thought they might be working on this play but decided maybe this is not for them and I absolutely understand that and honor that. So yeah, it's a different it's a different viewing right yeah. now. I think. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I want to thank all four of you for coming in today and talking about this play and also performing these very representative scenes from it. So it's much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking this morning with Susan Hardy, Lisa Edwards, Danny Anderson, and Rebecca Craven of Stage Left Theater's production of How I Learned to Drive. How I Learned to Drive opens tonight, December 1st, and runs at Stage Left Theater through December 17th. Tickets are available at stageleftheater.org.